Support for Climbing Gold comes from Whoop. It's a personalized, real-time fitness, sleep, and recovery tracker. They send you a Whoop strap, which looks like a watch, but you put it on, it links to your phone, and it monitors your body as you move throughout the day. It gives you access to the tools that a professional athlete would use. So it tracks your workouts and sleep, and then provides you with the information you need to improve your recovery and performance. You get personalized sleep recommendations, so you know how to adjust your routine. When it's time to work out, you get exertion level recommendations based on how recovered your body is that day. Find out more at whoop.com. If you've been thinking about trying Whoop, there's no better time to give it a shot. For our listeners, you can save 15% off a Whoop with the code GOLD. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code GOLD at checkout to save yourself 15%. Whoop. Know yourself. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with additional support from Hydroflask, Just Egg, a better egg made from plants, and Athletic Greens, the daily drink for a healthier you. Alex, you went to an NFL game last night, a Raiders game nonetheless. Uh, What did you think? It was totally insane. I don't know if you follow football, but uh, they won in overtime, like just barely squeaked it out. And, you know, I mean, uh, it's the first time that the stadium has been open for fans. So it was like fucking crazy. Like all these Raiders fans from Oakland and stuff. The people in front of us were all like black hole, like hardcore Raiders fans from Oakland. And they were freaking like I have these videos of just dudes going insane, just screaming (laughs) the whole game. It's like Sonny and I came home and our ears were just ringing. We were like, what the hell? It was so wild. We both were like, this is too much. But then I'm kind of like, you know, I could maybe go to another one. What, what stood out to you? I was really struck by how often the players get injured. Because on television, you occasionally see an injury where the player gets carted off the field on, on the little you know, go-kart. But what I was struck by was that play-by-play, there'd be one guy hobbling off the field. They're kind of limping aside. You know, basically, there were a bunch of plays where where the game doesn't stop for for an actual injury, but somebody just sort of limps to the sidelines. And I was like, man, this really is like watching modern gladiators just going to the death because, you know, at the end of the game, I don't know, there were, I'd seen maybe five or six people like, you know, injured in, in some capacity. I mean, probably not super seriously, but a lot of people going down and holding their leg and hobbling away. And you're like, this is this is a bit much. You know, it's like, this is pretty crazy. And, and so... I was uh, chatting about it with Sonny. I was like, this is like if sport climbers, every time you went to the sport crag, you saw at least one climber blow a pulley, you know, or something like that, have some like devastating injury every time you went climbing. So it would really make you second guess the whole climbing experience. But instead, that's incredibly rare. You know, it's like every once in a while, you can like hear somebody pop a finger or something. You're like, whoa. And it's and it's it's like an event. You know, it's like, I mean, you can remember the times that that's happened bouldering because you're like, holy shit. You know, it's like you rarely encounter injury in climbing. Dude, I I remember once I was on this climb uh, in, in Sedona down in Arizona called uh, Shangri-La. And it was this this really difficult stem box with, it was pretty desperate, but it had a few sort of segments where there were handholds and like kind of boulder problems. And just bearing down and all of a sudden I hear this like snap, like if you broke a hold. And being like, oh, I just broke the hold. But then like realizing like I was still attached to the wall and I'm being like, well, what was that sound? And then I looked down at my knee and it was like backwards. And oh. I, I like dislocated my patella. Like basically my kneecap was on the side of my leg. And it was like, and then I felt, and then I like took a 15 foot whipper because I was just like, ah! 
not. Like, I was like, I don't know what to do oh. with that. <laughs> yeah. Good times. <laughs> oh God. Um, have you, have you struggled with injuries or, you know, just kind of like your body at all as you've aged through climbing? Not a bunch. I mean, it's, on the one hand, I would I would paraphrase as like, oh, I'm pretty lucky, I haven't really injured anything. But then if I actually list out all the random injuries over the years, I mean, there kind of have been been a, a fair number. I mean, I've broken my arm three times, but two of those were as a little kid before I started climbing. Though I was technically falling off of things, so you know, I was climbing, but it was before I learned how to rock climb. And then once I broke my arm in the gym, and then doing doing a heroic dyno, which didn't work out that well, and then. Uh, <laughs> And then, you know, I've sprained my ankle, obviously, as you've seen free solo. I've uh, I maybe injured my back a bit once, you know, and then I've, I've blown some pulleys and fingers, but never anything too serious. Like, I've never had to take a serious amount of time off. Like, I basically climbed pretty much full stop for, for years. Yeah, I would say I'm very glad that I that I fell into climbing and not, you know, downhill skiing, let's say, where where a professional skier my age has had, you know, three knee replacements or, you know, knee surgeries of different kinds. So many other sports are just so high impact and climbing is relatively low impact. All that to say, football players aren't looking at their long-term individual health in the same way that climbers are or, or can be. Yeah. You know what I mean? With football players, like if you have a college career that's four years, the average NFL career, I think is only a couple seasons. So like mm-hmm. maybe three years, maybe four is like a good career in the NFL. It's just, you know, they don't have to think about long-term health and, and longevity in their sport in the same way because they know that by the time they're 25, they'll be winding, winding down from the sport. It's like with climbing, I mean, you can be climbing at a very high level into your late 50s. So, I mean, you know, really into your 60s. I mean, Peter Croft is still climbing at a very high level and he's in his 60s, I think. I think. No offense to Peter if, if he's not quite 60 yet. But, you know... It's just a totally different perspective in climbing because you really have to look at your own long-term health. I think one of the things that's struck me through this whole project, whether Alex and I were talking to legends or the people pushing the sport right now, is that the real struggle of their careers often went publicly unspoken while it was happening. Lynn Hill's free climb of the nose blew our sport's minds. But it was her effort to put women on equal footing in our sport that we will remember. Chris Sharma's raw, ferocious climbing redefined standards in our sport. But it was how he navigated the quieter tug of war between fame, expectations, and ego that ultimately made him a beloved figure in climbing. We often mistake the athletic accomplishment for the true struggle. Our culture's elite athletes, whether we are talking about climbing or the NFL, ask a great deal of their bodies in their pursuit of the limits of human potential. They put in the hard work, but sometimes they also ask too much, or maybe too much is expected. A football player returning to the field after a concussion, a peloton of riders accepting that the path to success could only come through performance-enhancing drugs. These are the things in the shadows that no one wants to talk about, and they get normalized because of it. These are the open secrets elite athletes carry, the behaviors coaches would prefer not to see, and frankly, the hard realities that as fans, we tend to willfully ignore about the sport that is playing in front of us. And climbing is not immune. Today, Kai Leitner and Beth Rodden step forward to shine a light 
on the razor thin line competitors and elite climbers often walk and what happens when you end up on the wrong side. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. Today's episode features discussions about disordered eating and mental health. There is a really fine line between a high level of training and abuse. It's it's safe to say that almost every world Olympic champion, high level athlete abuses their body in one way or another. It's just, that's how you become a part of that 1% of athletes. My name is Kai Leitner. I'm 20 years old. I'm a professional rock climber, and I've been climbing for about 14 years since I was six years old, and I started climbing in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I had plenty of injuries. Uh, I, I mean, I broke fingers, toes. I broke my back uh, and had, like, fluid leakage and had a doctor tell me that it would probably be able to climb again safely without re-injuring myself. So I think my um, my career almost ended when I was 16. Um, I've broken my thumb. So like, I think I, I definitely have my share of injuries in, in the Roblox along the way, but I think there's always that saying where it's like the person who wins at those highest competitions, isn't always just, just the best athlete, but the best athlete that isn't injured. And how did you get introduced to climbing? Um, I was a really active kid. I liked to climb everything. I learned how to climb over the baby gates. My mom sat around the house before I could walk, and I would eat lunch on the basketball hoop when I was a toddler. And so I just, I always found things to climb. And one day my mother was talking to her boss uh, at her job, and while she was distracted, I decided to climb the 60-foot flagpole right behind her that flew the state flag. And when I got to the top, this lady saw me and uh, asked me to get down and then took a sticky note at her purse and wrote the address to the local climbing gym on it. And she gave it to my mom and said that you should try rock climbing. So the next day after school, my mom brought me to the gym and begged the man at the front desk to get her ADHD kid into something productive. And that man at the front desk is Shane Messer, and he's been my lifetime coach since. And for me, I got into the climbing gym and I sat in front of the wall and it was the first activity my mother ever introduced me to where it was the only thing I could focus on. I had tried basketball, football, everything else, and none of it ever caught my attention for a long period of time, but I could sit in front of a climbing wall for three hours at a time and it was the only thing that I thought about, the only thing I obsessed over. And so it just felt like a connection. What was it about climbing that caught your attention? Um, I think what it is, is that it's not a performance metric sport. It's not like you have to do a certain time or perf- uh, perform a certain skill in order to be good at it. It requires so much thought and uh, problem solving that your, your brain is always moving. And for me, I don't know why, but when I'm climbing, I get this euphoric feeling and I feel the most in tune with my body and my brain feels the most turned on when I'm climbing and doing different movement. And I just, I have never felt that feeling with any other activity. So it's like once the pressure and the lights are on, I unlock 
something inside of me that I can't even do in practice. There's been countless times where I've competed where I'll top a route and then I'll come back to the gym days later and try it and not even get halfway. By the time he's seven years old, he was good enough to advance in national competitions, and meeting other climbers made him aware of the disadvantages in his training. When I was seven years old, and I saw the level of competition that was going on, also the fact that a lot of the top climbers came from these massive climbing clubs like Team ABC or Team Texas or Vertical World, and all the resources that they had and that I was kind of lacking. And so when I went back to the gym, I realized that I would have to be more disciplined than some of the other kids in order to achieve my dreams. And so I started traveling and working with different coaches um, here in Atlanta or traveling up to D.C. And eventually I got better. And then by the next season, bouldering. And then by the time I was 10 years old, I won my first youth national championships. And then I went on to win 10 more. Youth Worlds is pretty proud. When I won, it was the first time that an American had won since Chris Sharma in like the 90s. <laughs> so it's been like 25 years since an American had won a Youth World Championships in the lead discipline. I remember coming off and the U.S. team coach, his name is Claudio. He's like super stoic Romanian guy. And I saw him cry for the first time. And I was like, oh my goodness, I guess I must have did something. <laughs> the stresses of climbing well weren't the only things that were weighing on Kai. Growing up in my sport, it's like I have role models, but none of my role models look like me or came from backgrounds like me. A lot of them, like I looked up to Adam Andre a lot because he has a very similar, well, similar as, as can get a body type to me as being a tall athlete with long limbs. But he grew up in like, like a lot of other climbers, like they grew up in climbing environments, their families climbed, their parents climbed, and they lived out of crags. Like I came from the inner city. Um, and a predominantly minority area. And when I tried to tell my friends that I really enjoyed rock climbing, they looked at me like I had a third eye because they were like, why are you doing that sport for white people? Like, this, it doesn't make any money. There's no one at the top of it that looks like you. Like, we couldn't, I couldn't really imagine what success looked like for myself because I had never seen anyone do it before me that came from a similar community that I did. A lot of times when I'm, uh, entering these spaces as a minority, as the only black climber, people are already looking at, at me not just as one athlete, but a representation of like my entire race. <laughs> They'll be like, because there's just no other re reference point. And a lot of climbers didn't grow up in uh, diverse communities where they met a lot of people like me. And so I recognize that from that perspective, there's always going to be a microscope of how I behave. If I'm throwing tantrums or I'm not conducting myself in an appropriate manner, it's not just, oh, Kai has a bad attitude. It's that black people act this way. There were also subtle comments about his body type. He was larger and more muscular. It wasn't the body type coaches were used to seeing. And all of it made an impression on Kai. Youth competitions are more stressful than anything else in life. Like, if you make it through youth unscathed, it's like an accomplishment. Because I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the parents or the just general environment, but it is highly stressful. The intensity ramped up, but the knowledge... Uh, didn't quite match. So you had these athletes competing and training and beating their bodies up, but we didn't really have a centralized system with nutritionists, and we weren't a part of the um, U.S. Olympic Committee, and we didn't have a, a traveling therapist. I mean, doing these competitions were 
pretty much solely supporting ourselves. But there is this idea that in order to be a top-level athlete competitively and outdoors, that you have to be super skinny, super lean, and that was the best way to have the most endurance and to be the most durable. And so you had a lot of athletes competing who were well below uh, the, the weight that they should have been. Even at training camps, you know, we would do our six, eight-hour sessions and um, – there would have be kids who only ate like a cliff bar and a pasta salad throughout the whole day. And that was just normal. So Kai started doing what he saw others doing. Cut back on his eating, upped how much he exercised. For a time, he also took laxatives to keep his weight down. The downsides weren't insignificant. He felt sick all the time and regularly had migraines and acid reflux. But he says his methods worked. His climbing was, in his words better than ever. Even then, though, that wasn't enough. He thought he could always eat a little less, train a little more. There was always another benchmark to reach. I would go into competitions, and if my weight wasn't a certain way, then I felt like that I wasn't going to be able to win. Or I would, like, cry in front of a scale because I was like, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not on track for what I should weigh for this competition. And it was like these devastating moments. After the break, we talk about the true crux of our sport and find out why we might not be that different from the NFL after all. Support for our show comes from Whoop. One of the real benefits of a Whoop is how well it helps you recover. Whoop takes the key biometrics like your heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and sleep performance and calculates your recovery on a scale up to 100%. So it's basically a traffic light for your body. Green means you're ready to push yourself. Red means that your body is struggling to recover and that you should probably respect that. Alex, what are things you can do to help your body recover? Well, I try to get a good night's sleep. I try to eat well, stretch, basically try to take good care of myself. What wears you out? Pretty much everything else I do during the day, which means going climbing every day and adventuring in the mountains. You can find out more about recovery at whoop.com. Whoop. Know yourself. If you've been thinking about trying Whoop, there's no better time to give it a shot. For our listeners, you can save 15% off a Whoop with the code GOLD. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com, and use the code GOLD at checkout to save yourself 15%. Additional support comes from Just Egg, a better egg made from plants. I've been mostly plant-based for years now. I do it for my health and performance and for the planet. So to have a delicious product like Just Egg is a real game changer for me. You can use Just Egg to make an omelet, stir fry, frittata, or whatever else you do with eggs. But by making Just Eggs from plants, it uses 98% less water and produces 93% fewer carbon emissions. You can find Just Egg almost anywhere, including Whole Foods, Safeway, Walmart, or your local co-op. Proud to have you with us, Just Egg. I was struggling with is called disordered eating, and it's not uncommon in the sports world, or anywhere else for that matter. According to the National Eating Disorders Association, athletes in sports that emphasize muscularity and individuals rather than teams are more likely to develop an unhealthy relationship with food. It can come in different forms. Anorexia, bulimia, binge eating. Studies have found that less than 6% of people struggling with disordered eating are actually underweight, so it's hard to detect. 
In some sports like gymnastics, disordered eating affects up to 62% of female athletes and 32% of male athletes. Data on rock climbers is not extensive, like there's not a lot. But there was one survey in 2017 that shed some light on the extent of the issue. Climbers from all over the world were asked about their eating habits, and the results showed that climbers, particularly those competing at elite levels, had higher rates of disordered eating than the general population. For elite climbers, this wasn't news. At a very young age, at a very early time in my climbing, it became apparent that people manipulated what they ate and what they put into their bodies or didn't put into their bodies to climb better, to be lighter, right? Because if you were lighter, then you had less to pull up. For me, I saw it as a way to enhance my performance. This is Beth Rodden, who I kind of feel like at this point barely needs an introduction on the show since she's helped us talk through a lot of topics. Uh, but here goes. Beth is one of the most accomplished LCAP climbers ever. She established Meltdown, which was for a while the hardest trad climb at 514C. She grew up in a competitive circuit and was part of the youth wave that redefined climbing in the late 90s. She's also not afraid to have real conversations about her sport, which I deeply appreciate and respect. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's something that we need to talk more about and kind of bring out of the shadows in climbing. I know for me, when I started climbing, it was everywhere. And it it was never specifically talked about unless it was in a very negative light, like, oh, that person definitely isn't eating or, or whatnot, even though it definitely affected everybody that I climbed with and knew and talked to. And just like Kai, Beth began to restrict what she ate. One of my climbing heroes specifically told me that she lost five pounds before every competition and then she gained it back. And me being 15 or 16 at the time thought, well, I'll just never gain it back and then I'll be even better, right? And so I was tiny. I was like 75 or 80 pounds until I was 19 years old. Very clear that most climbers that I knew, it wasn't like eating came freely or easy to them, right? It was always like this thing that had all this energy around it and stress and anxiety of like, am I eating too much? Am I eating too little? And for me, it eventually got to the point is like, well, I need to make sure I eat in front of people so they don't think I'm starving myself, even though I actually am starving myself. It really enhances your performance, at least for me in the short term, right? It's like something that you can use to try and send that project or be really light at a competition. But it's not good for your body. It's clearly not something that you can maintain and maintain health. And, you know, I, I've had years of injuries. And I think it's a, honestly a direct result of that, of me depriving my body of nutrients and overtraining for years on end. I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you think that eating disorders are as prevalent in competition climbing now as they were in the 90s? I think it depends on the type of climbing, honestly. I think in sport climbing, where it's good to be light and, you know, or lighter and less muscular, I absolutely know just from talking to people that are still competing that it is an issue from their own personal experiences. But I think with bouldering, honestly, it's less of an issue because you want to be strong and you want to be muscular and have power. And if you starve yourself, you don't have that, right? You know, I've been talking 
on my social media channels about this for a little while now. And it is crazy the amount of men that reach out to me and talk to me about this, right? I never knew it. I thought it was, you know, naively, I purely, I thought that maybe it affected a little bit, but it, it definitely affects a lot of men as well who are very muscular and who you would never think would have an eating disorder, right? I think that's one common mistake is like, you probably think that people have an eating disorder, like look like I did, have these like twig legs and twig arms and very, very skinny. But I've been contacted by a lot of people who are very muscular that think they're too muscular. So they try and like starve themselves a little bit more to to be a little leaner. So unfortunately, I feel like it's, it's still very prevalent, which is really sad. I think any elite climber at some point thinks about their weight and thinks about managing their weight because, you know, the reality is it's just hard to carry yourself up a wall, you know, but it's just, it's just such a narrow line when you cross over into sort of disordered eating. Exactly. And I feel like it's a very slippery slope because at least for me, and I know for a lot of my friends that I've talked to this, um, that I've talked about this too, it's just, you do see those immediate gains, right? It's hard, especially because I feel like in climbing, historically, it's been very celebrated for accomplishment, achievement, and that has been, you know, done by certain body types. And so that's what people see all the time. It's also joked about, right? Like how often have you been at the crag or at the boulders or whatnot? And somebody says like, a moment on the lips, forever on the hips, or, you know, something like that. And it's just those like, those underlying jokes about it or, oh, looks like you shouldn't have eaten that dessert last night. You know, like that type of thing. That was said to me all the time and I still hear it, you know. And so for someone that is maybe a little bit more sensitive or is like taking it really seriously, like that type of thing starts to build up and add up. And I think then it becomes this kind of problem that the community has. Alex, would you just explain the strength to weight ratio in climbing? I think that these ideas, you know, talking about strength to weight ratio sound pretty abstract for uh, a casual listener, somebody that like likes to climb, you know, very, uh, you know, leisurely as, as like a fun hobby. But I will say, if you've been climbing and training at a high level for a long time, you get to a point where it's just, it's just easier to lose a couple pounds than to gain that much more muscle. You know, like when you're doing uh, weighted hangs like you're hangboarding so with weight on, on like finger strength like your increment of progress is normally uh, like two and a half pounds or like one kilo let's say and so you can do whole periodized training schedules where you train for weeks at a time and you gain a few little increments like that where it's like oh i've made a little progress i added two and a half pounds to my max hang and that's like a big step forward you know when you're starting to get close to your limits but losing two and a half pounds for an average size man you know my size I weigh, you know, almost 160 pounds. So losing two and a half pounds is a tiny percentage of my weight. And so it's not really that hard to lose two pounds if I just don't eat for a day or two. You know, that's a lot easier than than training for six weeks or four weeks at least. And, you know, it's always going to be there as this sort of tempting short-term solution. You know, humans are always tempted to take shortcuts, you know, to find the easiest path to, to whatever desired state they have, you know, it's like, I want to get here. I'm going to find the easiest path. And sometimes that's just not eating sadly. 
you know, in, in a way, it makes me kind of think of uh, concussions in football. I think, you know, in that case, the crux of it in the NFL is that everyone wants player safety. The players, their families, the coaches want it. You know, m- rational fans want it. Um, and the teams in the leagues really did wake up to it. And while, like, I don't think that their motivations were, like, totally altruistic, um, they realized that they did have a, a massive problem. But it's also football, which is, like, a sport where insanely athletic giant dudes crash into each other. So, you know, I think that the, the league, you know, like they're trying to tinker with helmets with the rules to create better outcomes. And they're hoping that these like small changes produce like better things in the future. But on a level, it's like, it kind of seems like the concept of player safety is like a little bit of a farce. Like the game is just decidedly not safe. And, as long as people play football at a high level, there's going to be tension there. And there's, and just to deny that seems like it's like, it's like almost sticking your head in the sand. Like it's dangerous and it has a consequence to people. Do you see the strength weight ratio as having a similar tension where it's just at the core of the sport and it's, it's just like, it's going to be hard to resolve that. A struggle against strength to weight ratio will always be at the core of climbing. I mean, that's just, you know, climbing will always be a challenge against, you know, a struggle against gravity. And so there's always going to be an upside to being lighter. And the challenge is how you manage that in a healthy way. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't think any of this shit is usable. I mean, and that's what's so difficult about this conversation is that, you know, it's like, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to go down the wrong path. Yeah. It's like, it's just this sort of thing that we don't want to talk about because we don't want to hurt somebody. But then there's also the side of the sport that it's like hard to ignore. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that it's important to be able to have healthy conversations about weight. Beth, uh, how did you, how did you work through your own struggles with disordered eating? So for women, you know, it's just something that is like so pounded into us that the bigger you are, the less attractive you are, the less, you know, performance you'll have and, and that sort of thing. So I don't know for me, I, yeah, I mean, I think after pregnancy and stuff like that, for me, I, I had to change my whole inner dialogue to be able to actually not be completely resentful of my body postpartum. So it took a lot of work because I think I was so trained to this one side of like, if you're fit, then you're performing. And if you're performing, you're liked. And if you're liked, you're successful. And it was just kind of this thing that I, you know, was really hard to untrain my mind around. So, so overall, what would you say to young climbers now? I mean, would you encourage people to get into competition climbing? That's a really good question. I mean, I I think that I'm wondering that about being a parent, right? Like, I'm like, should I encourage Theo to like go onto the local climbing team when he's old enough and that sort of thing? Yeah. And so what do you think? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, actually. I, I don't, I don't have an answer because of all that that's changed in climbing and how serious the competitions are now and how I see the eating issues are rampant, you know, especially in girls, but even in boys and I don't know if this is a, I mean, this is a podcast you're like trying to promote climbing. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, we want to hear the whole story. I mean, get into it. I, I actually don't know. After the break, 
talk about the path forward. Climbing Gold is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the daily drink for a healthier you. Those of you who listened to season one of Climbing Gold have heard me talk about how much I appreciated Athletic Greens on an expedition into the jungle last winter. Well, now I've continued to use it daily for almost six months, and it's become an important part of my morning routine. It's hard to quantify exactly, but I've just felt good. What's great about Athletic Greens is that their product is an all-in-one nutritional supplement with 75 ingredients covering a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, greens blend, and more that supports your immune system, gut health, energy, and recovery without the need to take multiple products. I love the fact that they focus on the quality and improvement of one product without trying to sell you many. They've made 53 upgrades to date with more coming. Athletic Greens is offering Climbing Gold listeners a special offer of a free year supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. If there's one thing you want to take, try Athletic Greens by going to athleticgreens.com slash climbing gold. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash climbing gold. If you've been listening to season one of Climbing Gold, you know how important parks are for our sport. And so I want to say a big thank you to Hydroflask because in 2017, they launched a program called Parks for All, through which they've given almost $2 million in cash grants to something like 120 different nonprofits around the country. Those nonprofits, in turn, support projects like getting people outside, increasing access to public spaces for everyone, or restoring and building new trails, which is a very good way of helping protect parks for the future. Thanks, Hydroflask. We're talking about eating disorder stuff. How does climbing manage that kind of thing? Because strength to weight ratio is at the at the core of climbing. Yeah. It's often easier to lose weight than it is to gain strength. As climbing becomes more mainstream, more competitive, all those things. Like, how do you prevent you know disordered eating? That's the question, right? Is like it's. I mean, number one, you have to change the culture a bit. Zach D. Cristino is USA Climbing's physical therapist and medical manager. It's much easier to, you know, lose weight over a couple of weeks than, you know, say putting in the work and getting stronger, which takes, you know, many weeks and months and effort. And, but I think, you know, from a medical side of things, like you I always tell people you're literally on a knife's edge, right? Like, yeah, you might be feeling like you're floating, but you're so close to the edge that you're going to crash soon. And I think one of the things we're seeing, not just in climbing, but we see with like, you know, cross country runners or long distance runners is um, what's called RED. And so that's the relative energy deficiency syndrome. So where you're just barely eating enough to, you know, fuel just like sitting on a couch all day, but then you're training like several hours a, a, a week. So I think, uh, I mean, one of the things is, is teaching them the consequences or you know, educating them about the consequences if you continue down this path and then how it can really disrupt I mean, your long-term health um, and not just your immediate health or your performance. But I think, you know, in my mind, a lot of athletes are sold on what can help their performance. And so that's where you kind of start to talk about like eating sufficiently to fuel your workouts. And there's a way, I think, to do that where you can maintain good body composition. Um, but, you know, I always say, like, everyone's designed to be optimal at a certain weight. So that's going to be different, a little bit different for everyone. But, uh, yeah, I think there's just more, you know, you almost just have to show them the 
the two extremes, right? Um, or not the, you know, two extremes, but the consequences, um, because like it can certainly like shorten your, your career. There has been some effort by Climbing's international governing body, the IFSC, to indirectly address disordered eating. Since 2012, they've issued guidelines for what an athlete's BMI should be in order to compete. So the threshold for guys is 19, for women it's 18. And so if you're below the threshold, what they do is they contact the national federation. So it'd be for us, USA Climbing, for Italy, it would be their federation, and they would warn them. And so they then have to have the athlete and you know their head of their federation kind of attest to this and say they're going to seek action in terms of getting this person the assistance, the resources they need to hopefully correct it. If someone doesn't correct it, I'm not sure what happens. I, I, I would imagine like there would be probably some consequence, like you don't get to compete if it's not corrected after a certain amount of time. And we've seen that with like an athlete, like not on our team, but on another team um, a couple years ago, where it was, it was pretty obvious. So that's kind of like some of the measures the IFSC is putting. Um, but I mean, as you can imagine, it, like the discussions we've had with our medical committee, and it, it all started with someone like say it comes to a competition for our nationals and they have a very obvious injury or something, we don't have the ability to step in and say, you shouldn't compete, you're at risk for yourself. You're going to really hurt yourself. And so then we started thinking about like, well, what if someone comes to a competition and very obviously has like an eating disorder? And that's the tricky thing is like, you can't diagnose it on a spot, right? You need several layers of screens and testing and, DEXA scans, bone scans, you name it. So you can't say on the spot, like, you can't compete. But you can certainly maybe put out the education out there to coaches and family and teammates and say, these are the things to look for. And hopefully you can educate this person and get them the resources so they never come to the competition in that state, hopefully. Um, it's probably going to take some time to make the change, you know. And I think right now we just want to focus on educating people to help quote-unquote identified early um, so that we we don't have to put someone through maybe like that intervention and on a scale that can be obviously you know a little um, embarrassing and or shameful for someone so providing like resources is one thing, but making sure that those resources get to the people who need them is different. And it's like not even totally clear, like who provides those resources, right? Exactly. You, you know, so one of the other interesting analogies I was thinking about with professional climbing the other day is that it's incredibly entrepreneurial. I mean, if you're a professional climber, you're basically working for yourself and you're coaching yourself to some extent and you're guiding your own climbing. And in much the same way that that a, a startup founder or like an entrepreneur basically could work full time all the time. You know, being a climber is kind of the same way where, you know, you constantly feel like maybe I should be doing a little bit more. Should I be training a little harder? Should I be like climbing a little more? It's like, should I be doing, you know, whereas with many other sports, you have a coach who basically tells you what to do and when, and you don't really have to exceed that. It's not the norm. And I think that with climbing, it's easy to just work at it nonstop all the time. To assume that more is more. Yeah, exactly. That the more you work, the better you'll be. And, you know, obviously that's not entirely true. Like it's a bit of a saying with professional climbers. 
that it's one of the only sports where people are trying to peak all the time because with with being a climber it's like people always have their project outside and as soon as they send it they try the next project and then they try the next project and there's no built-in off season to climbing whereas most other sports have some kind of built-in off season where where the athletes rest for a few months or you know somehow get ready for the next season and with climbing there just isn't an off season because you know, when the competition season's over, you stay in Europe for a couple months and you try some of the hardest sport routes in the world. And then, and then you start comp- competing again a few months later. It's like, there's no break. Mm-hmm. And not to say that that's a good thing, but that's just kind of the way it is. I mean, one idea that immediately came to mind was uh, a corporation's focus on short-term, like quarterly profits over a long-term gain. Because <laughs> I feel like with, with disordered eating, it's it's kind of the same idea where it's like, you can see great short-term results but you see long-term downsides and it's just hard to see the long term sometimes when you're when you're focused on the next competition or the next route you know the next send it's like if you're if you're living quarter by quarter it's hard to look at the long term but I, I just know that as an athlete you're always looking goal by goal you're looking at like the next the next game the next competition the 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 next project that you're working on you know, you're occasionally looking maybe one or two seasons out where, uh, you know, like later in the year, I'll try to do this. And then that will prepare me for next year for this specific expedition. But it's very rare to meet a climber who's thinking more than a year or two in advance. And, you know, the challenge with with this sort of eating is that it affects you over the very long term, you know, over the health of your life. And so, you know, if you want to be a, a successful professional climber, you have to be climbing at a high level for a long period of time. Eventually, Kai's disordered eating caught up with him. He reached a point where his liver close to failing and his sphincter muscles in his stomach were almost non-functional, creating terrible acid reflux. He was 13 years old, 5'8", and weighing 95 pounds. It took a support system of therapists, nutritionists, and coaches to help Kai come into a healthier relationship with food and his body. And it's a relationship that he's still working on. I've definitely gotten better at it because... I've spoken to more people and I, I read a lot and I educate myself on how to be a better athlete and understanding how like reading about uh, different forms of eating disorders and realizing how my eating patterns fit into that or speaking to a therapist or speaking to a nutritionist realized that there's better ways to train to make myself better. It was like if I kept doing what I was doing, I was going to hit a wall and I was going to get any better. And so my competitiveness helped me kind of get over that line. Beth, how do we get better at talking to our young climbers about this? It's hard to have that conversation, right? Like it would have been so hard for like one of the gym owners who's probably, you know, 15 or 20 years older than me to have this guy that had never gone to a World Cup and had never like won a competition tell me that I wasn't eating enough or try and have that constructive conversation with me because I just felt so empowered by what I was doing, then I was like, ugh, you just wouldn't understand. So I feel like there's this real lack of mentorship from the climber, like elder climbers in that way, to pass that on to younger kids, to try and talk to them about it, to try and talk to them about the dangers of it and the repercussions of it, and to try and talk about how to be healthy with it. Because for the most part, I feel like many of the people in my generation went through it, and so to try and be able to pass that on and to help people would, would be huge. But it's just like, it's so hard. There's so many new climbers coming into it. 
I mean, there's not a lot of, I don't really know if there's any books or uh, a lot of professionals in our fields who, who understand how our bodies work and can help us work at a top level. If you look at any other sport, like track and field, gymnasts, they have clubs, they have doctors who will specifically know their bodies. There's books written, different case studies that you can go off of. But in our sport, we're kind of just winging it. And considering how physically demanding it is, it's kind of dangerous because all we have to go off of is looking at what the top athletes look like and how can we mimic that. Success can come in a million different body types. Because of some, how much variety our sport allows, we have to teach our young athletes and athletes in general that you have to focus on your personal normal, your personal best, and that will be able to carry you much further than trying to fit somebody else's normal. What determines whether you step over that line and do things that are extreme or, or unhealthy and have long-term effects is your support system, especially as youth athletes. Having coaches who understand um, the youth anatomy and how to build strong athletes in a healthy way or having a strong support system at home with your parents or even a nutritionist or trainer that's a part of your program. It's like all these things are things that help guide you not only as a person but as an athlete and keep you on that line of just being healthy and strong as opposed to tipping over. And I feel like for our sports to progress in the way that we want it to as an Olympic sport, producing more high-level athletes, we have to have a more developed system of coaches, of nutritionists, of people who understand our bodies and how our bodies work and how we can be better athletes in a healthy way. Hang on. Before we roll the credits... If you're struggling with disordered eating, there's some resources out there. Start with nationaleatingdisorders.com, which has a hotline, text, and chat function. We will share a few other resources we found on our website or on Climbing Gold on Instagram. Okay, back to the credits. Thanks, Kai and Beth, for sharing your stories and perspective. Climbing Gold is a production of Duck Cape and Beer. Our host is Alex Honnold. Today's show was written and edited by senior producer Elizabeth Nakano and me, Fitzka Hall. Music today by Amy Stolzenbach, Brennan O'Connell, and Cordelia Zars, who also provided additional editing and mixing. Art direction by Anya Miller. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Redzik and Ben Andy for RXR Sports. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>